0: Amen. Please be seated. Accept the kiddos. Kids, let me invite you to go ahead and run to the rear as you go and be discipled in the word of the Lord. Good morning to you, Restoration Church. Good morning. It's good to be back in front of you. Uh, I don't get... uh, I get to preach next week, but uh, uh, you're relieved of me for at least one more week. But it's my my opportunity to uh, introduce... Uh, the brother that will be preaching to us God's word this morning to us. When I was uh, scheduling my sabbatical in terms of the preachers that would come and fill in for those that when I was gone, I knew exactly who I wanted to come and fill in. Um, Going back to last November when I was still here, when Kenneth Jones came and preached from, uh, who's a pastor in Brookland of our city, Redeemer City Church, uh, to the brothers that you all have seen preach, with one exception, Larry Trotter, who's the pastor of our mother church in north carolina what i desired to do is to expose you to the kinds of people that i me and joey and the other pastors we learn from and are encouraged by and inspired by uh, that's one of the reasons we wanted to choose folks that we learn from ourselves and expose them to you and secondly uh, this was one of the biggest aspects i wanted to expose you guys to what god was doing in and around washington dc from other pastors in other churches in and around our city so When we came here in 2000, when we decided to come here in 2008, we made we made videos of, you know, uh, reasons why to go plant a church in Washington, D.C. And we, we went and spoke to churches and and all of the things that filled their minds and the things that filled those videos are all the kinds of things that you see on the evening news. Right all the monuments and the nice buildings and the Capitol and, you know, the row houses, the nice row houses and all these types of things. And even today, if you go and watch, in the last five years, church planting has boomed in Washington, D.C. But when I talk to people about where they're going, and it's so good, we we celebrate that, we pray for them, we help them, we encourage those planters no matter where they go in our city. But you'll notice most of the places that are talked about, uh, the places that people go to plant churches, and uh, the kinds of ways that we think about Washington, D.C. As are as, uh, is not the kinds of places that Jeremy McLean lives in. So, in other words, I sometimes reference Washington, D.C. to prospective church planners. Brother, you need to understand that there are two Washington, D.C.s. There's not one Washington, D.C. There's two. There's the kind of Washington, D.C. that looks like Tenleytown, where we live and minister gladly. And then there's, the con- then there's the part of Washington, D.C. that doesn't look like me, that's poor, that's hard, that has a lot more problems than we face. We have plenty of problems of our own, but, have, but most people don't think about that side of our city. And so you were exposed to that in part from our brother Kenneth Jones when he came from Brooklyn back in November. Two weeks ago, you were exposed to Thabiti Anyabwile that's planting a church in Anacostia of Washington, D.C. Uh, on the other side of the Anacostia River. And today, I have the great privilege of introducing you to Jeremy McLean, who's planting a church in Deanwood, uh, which is also north. Well, they're actually northeast Washington, D.C. Further away, not the Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., northeast. Uh, The northeast further out. Um, Jeremy and his wife, Tiffany, who's here with us as well as their children. um, They are honestly, I'm not saying this just because they're sitting in front of me. If you were to ask me, Nathan, who are the people that inspire you, encourage you, and and you admire the most, Jeremy McLean and his wife Tiffany would be in that list for me. Not just because they're ministering in a really hard part of our city, but because they love Jesus and they do it with the spirit of Christ. And they go to hard places and they do hard things. And I don't know about you, it's easy for me to kind of do the easy thing and to go to the easy places that are most comfortable to me. Well, Jeremy McLean and his wife Tiffany... They've chosen not to do that, to go, not to go to the easy places. But for the sake of the glory of Christ and the good of his people, God deserves to be worshipped in Deanwood. And so Jeremy and his wife, Tiffany, have moved their, uh, themselves, obviously, there, and their ch- three children to minister the gospel. Uh, you've heard us pray for them many times. Mercy of Christ Fellowship is now just celebrated one year. Am I right? Just celebrated one year. Uh, so their church is new. Uh, We support them financially and prayerfully and otherwise. A number of us have been over to their part of the community to just help and serve. And uh, if you're interested in either moving there, supporting there, come talk to Jeremy and Tiffany after service. Um, But uh, it is my pleasure to introduce you. He's going to be preaching from Matthew chapter 14. He'll read that text for you in a moment. But uh, uh, I'm so thankful that you get to be exposed to a wonderful brother that loves Jesus and spreading the gospel and a part of the city we don't often think about, but we need to. So let me pray for him in advance of him coming. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. And so in advance of the preaching of your word, I pray that our hearts would be submitted to it as we submit to you. Pray that you would speak to us just as we have sung. That you would change us from the inside out. That we might come to love you and love our neighbors as ourselves. God, thank you. Bless our brother as he comes to feed us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I thank the Lord for you all. Um, You all have been a blessing to Mercy of Christ Fellowship Church. Your pastors have become our friends. And we say the same thing about this church and also uh, Pastor uh, Knight and um, Joey, how uh, you all inspire and and, encourage and you all really are an example to others, us, how we want to do ministry. So we praise the Lord for you all. I'll be coming from Matthew chapter fourteen, verses um, thirteen to thirty. I'll be in Matthew chapter fourteen, verses thirteen to thirty. By God's grace, you all are a family of believers that are co- that is committed to to playing your part in fulfilling the Great Commission. You're seeking to make disciples of all nations. You're baptizing people into your fellowship and into the fellowship of this church, and you are teaching the word of God. Praise the Lord for that. And you are magnifying God's glory and spreading his word around the world, around this area, um, and that is great. And this morning, I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to keep pressing on in the work that you're doing, and I want to do that by reminding you of the one who is with you. Um, when Jesus finished giving the command to his disciples, to go and make disciples of all nations, he gave a great encouragement at the end. He said, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And since it's to the end of the age, this applies to you. So Restoration Church, Jesus is with you always. He will remain with you until he comes. And we should let that be your strength. And so the reason that could be your strength and my strength is because of who Jesus is and of a certain characteristics about himself. And that's what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 30. I'm going to walk through it piecemeal, very slowly, and I'm going to point out five things. I'm going to point out five things about Jesus um, that should encourage us. And I'll tell you them as we go. So you don't have to look to your neighbor like, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? You'll write them as we go. So the first one we're going to see is that Jesus is full of compassion. And so we'll get that from the first two verses. And so I'm going to read those and then stop. Matthew chapter 14 verses 13 to 14 is where we're going to see Jesus is full of compassion. And it reads, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. We're going to see Jesus' compassion in these two verses. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, we're told that Herod believed that Jesus was John the Baptist, that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And when Jesus heard that, he decided to withdraw because he knew that his life was probably in jeopardy. Out of prudence, Jesus decides to leave because Herod had John the Baptist's head cut off. And so just as he had told his disciples, if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Jesus decided to withdraw, not out of fear, but because he knew that it was not his time to die. And so he decides to withdraw to be by himself, and he went to a desolate place. And in a parallel account, in Mark chapter 6, we learn that the disciples also went with him so that they could be by themselves. They had become tired from the demands of ministry, so Jesus said that they should go along with him and to be by themselves also. And so they all get in the boat, and they cross the Sea of Galilee. That's what we learn in other accounts. So by our text, we see that the crowds, however, decide to meet him on the other side of the sea. They met him where they were going. Now, Nathan Knight loves you, but he probably would not have been happy to see you while he was on sabbatical. (laughs) He went to the farthest part of the deepest south. But he would not have been happy because he didn't love you just because he's human and he needs rest. And so you blessed your pastors when you allowed them to go on sabbatical and when you did not send them emails. You blessed your pastors when you did that because pastors and ministers need rest, just like you all need rest. But these, this crowd did not seek to be a blessing to Jesus and his disciples. They went right around the sea, and they met them on the other side. So when the disciples and Jesus looked up while they were on the shore, they saw the crowds. Now, some of us may have got back in the boat and went someplace else, but Jesus had compassion. So in verse 14, it said, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus didn't leave. He began to minister to the people. And why did he do it? Because he was full of compassion. Compassion. Compassion goes beyond this a thesis statement. It goes beyond writing a book. When a person is compassionate, when they encounter misery, it com- they're compelled to act. Compassion is sorrow felt to the point where a person feels miserable if they don't try to relieve someone else's misery. So Jesus was full of compassion when he saw the crowds. And what makes his compassion so unlike ours and so holy is that he was showing compassion to people who really didn't want him for who he was and didn't love him for his teaching. They just wanted signs and miracles. And yet he still looks at them and decides to show compassion and to heal them. That's compassion. He could have demonstrated his power in many other ways. And he did at times but he decided to use his power to heal the hurting. But that's not all he did. In the parallel accounts, in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, and in Luke chapter 9, verse 11, we read that he was doing something else. He was preaching the kingdom of God to them as well. Jesus showed compassion by healing and by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. While Jesus was opening blind eyes, he was telling them to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. His compassion included teaching the gospel. Because the misery of this world does not compare to the misery of hell. And to express this incomparable torment, the incomparable torment of hell. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than to be cast into hell. The eternal, painful judgment of hell far exceeds any pain or misery in this world. So out of compassion and love for them, he heals them of their physical ailments and he tells them to repent because he does not want to see them to enter he does not want them to enter into destruction he wants them to enter into the joy of his father so he heals and he tells them to repent someone asked him one time with all the problems within your community Uh, poor education, uh, unemployment, drugs, etc., why do you think they need you to plant a church or for a church to be planted there? And I said, um, now imagine going through all of those things without Jesus and ending up in hell. Planting a church is one of the most compassionate things that can be done in the community. Planting Alejandro is one of the most loving things that can be done. To serve people, preaching the gospel to your neighbors and, and to your children and to your coworkers is compassion. Because we know that if people do not know Jesus Christ, they will end up in eternal hell. And we don't want that for anyone. If you are a person here, you've come here today and you feel as though the Lord does not love you or you feel as though the Lord has forgotten you or that he has not been compassionate towards you over the years. Listen to me. The fact that you're here in this service listening to the gospel being preached to you is a major act of God showing you compassion. men don't make themselves preachers or teachers of God's word. God raises up preachers and then he sends them out to show compassion to you by preaching the gospel so that you might be saved and escape his judgment. Receive the compassion of the Lord today. The compassion of the Father Moved him to send his only begotten son to this sinful world in order to die for for the wickedness of people. The compassion of God the son didn't stop with just healing people or with just preaching, but it moved him to willingly lay aside his rights and to endure the divine punishment from God the father on the cross. For the wickedness of people. And then the Lord raised Jesus up in power. And now he sits in heaven. Compassionately extending the call to everyone to be saved. To turn from their sin. To turn from their empty religion. To turn from their idolatry. And to put their trust in him. That is the compassion of Jesus. Jesus. The gospel is full of grace, and it's offered to any and everyone who would, all you have to do is come to him and receive this compassion today. Don't presume that you will have another opportunity to answer the call tomorrow. Today, if you hear his voice, trust in him. And if you are a person who have received God's compassion You've enjoyed this rich grace. Don't forget how compassionate the Lord Jesus was towards you. None of you, none of us deserved, deserved salvation. Some of us was actually out just like the crowds, just wanting to be amongst Jesus to get something from him. Some of you went to campus outreach looking for pizza and Chick-fil-A. But the Lord had other things in mind and he saved you. Some of you went to church trying to find a spouse. Trying to get your parents off your back. Trying to get your friends to set up. Some of you read the Bible trying to figure out ways to refute it. And yet the Lord in his sovereign compassion interrupted your wickedness. And interrupted your your, your, your sinful intentions, and brought you into his fellowship by saving you. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And then while we were still sinning, he called out to us and grabbed us and brought him to himself. That's compassion. We ought, not remem- we ought to remember that compassion towards us. And then we have to remember that it is that same compassionate Jesus who says he is with us always as we go out. And as you go out to fulfill this commission. As you go out to show this compassion towards others. You can't give a person a new heart, but you can share the gospel with someone. And you can pray that the Lord will give them a new heart. And that will be compassionate and live as though the God of compassion is with you and ready to save people he's not stingy with salvation he's not partial with salvation he's sovereign in his salvation he's sovereign with his compassion and he loves to dish it out and that Jesus, who loves to dish out compassion, is with you as you preach the gospel. So go and expect people to be saved because your Jesus is full of compassion towards others. Some of you do not. All of you, I'm assuming, do not have the gift of miracles at the moment. And I'm assuming none of you can give anybody their sight. But you can give somebody a ride. And you can give somebody a meal. So the same compassion. Remember Jesus' compassion preached the gospel and he healed. And so we should be compassionate enough to care for people's needs as well. Even if they don't become saved, we should still show people compassion. Compassion. from the person who's a construction worker on the road. We should pray for their safety, praise the Lord, because we care about people. And we should pray for those people who were massacred in New Zealand because we pray, we care about people, even if they're of a different religion. Because our Lord Jesus was full of compassion. A lot of the people that he preached to did not come to salvation at that time. They yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And he kept healing them when, they, when the crowds came. Your good towards people, at, your acts of kindness should not be contingent upon whether they accept your offer of, salva- of, your offer of the gospel or not. Should be well. It should be from a heart of deep and sincere love for people. I know you all already do that. I'm just encouraging you. I've seen you all down at in Lincoln Heights at the um, at the carnival playing with kids. I've seen one of you or some of you at Denny's uh, one night thinking about justice. I know that you all are are involved with compassion, uh, with the gospel, and with good deeds, and I want to just encourage you to continue to press on in that way. We care about their eternal destiny, for sure, to the utmost, and we also care about their temporal state as well down here. So continue to be a church full of compassion, knowing that the God of compassion, Jesus, is with you. But I'm sure that there are times when we look out and we we look at the number of nations that does not know Jesus or does not have a, a, a gospel preaching church or the, even the Bible translated in, in their language. We look at that and we can be discouraged. And we can say we don't have enough resources. Or we can look at some of the problems in our city and we could be discouraged and we can say we don't have enough resources. let's look at Jesus. And number two, let's 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 find our sufficiency to do the task in Jesus. So we're going to look at verses 15 and 18. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Stop right there. Jesus had ministered all day. Now it's the evening time and the sun was going down and it was time to eat. The people did not have food because they had come around to meet Jesus in this desolate place. And so the disciples make a very practical suggestion. He says, "Uh, Jesus, let's send the crowds away to buy themselves some food so that they can eat. But Jesus responds with a very shocking statement. Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. In other accounts, we learn that. Uh, And it's this one we learned that there's well over 5,000 people there. And there were only two fish and five loaves. So this command to give them something to eat almost seemed preposterous and mind-blowing. It was definitely unable to be accomplished in their own strength. They did not have enough resources. They also learned that they they didn't have enough money. So in other accounts, they say, we we don't have enough money to go and buy all of food for all of these people. We don't have enough resources. And that's the exact same way we feel sometimes. The Lord Jesus has given us a command to go and make disciples of all nations. and, And we often think, Jesus, we can't go. We don't have enough. He called us to be sought and light on this block and on this corner and to bring gospel-centered compassion to this community. But Lord, we can't do it. We don't have enough experience. We don't have enough similarities. We don't have enough knowledge of the culture. We don't, um, I'm just a college student. I don't have enough money. Oftentimes we, we say we don't have enough. And oftentimes we feel, Lord Jesus, why would you ask us to do such a, such a big task when you know we don't have enough? We'll look at, turn to John 6 real quick and we'll get a little bit more insight into this discussion. John 6 is another parallel account that touches on this, the feeding of the five thousand plus people. And we'll see a little bit more about that's going on with this discussion in John chapter six, verses one to six. It reads, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So we see this discussion with Philip and with the other disciples and and why does it say that he told Philip to to go and find some bread or he said he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do the lord was testing his disciples and he wasn't testing them in order to for them to fail, he was testing them so that they would acknowledge and learn that their sufficiency must come from him. So, back in our text, Jesus says, Bring the five loaves and the two fish to me, bring them here. Jesus was with them. And it's because Jesus was with them, he had all the resources in himself necessary. To feed the five thousand plus people, so it lets me know. Getting input about your skills and your abilities that is important, and taking an inventory of your resources that is wise to do. It's humble and it's good to think through what you have and how you can contribute. But we should not overassess our skills. And we shouldn't over-assess our abilities. Over-assessing our gifts can lead to paralysis on one end because we see we're not gifted enough and then we don't go or don't do anything. On the other side, over-assessing and evaluating ourselves can lead to pride because we think we have everything to go. And we shouldn't go on either of those. Our job is not to over-assess or evaluate our skills, our main job is to look at the Lord Jesus and his commands and remember that he is with us, and then say, okay, Lord Jesus, you've told me to do it. Now be my sufficiency. Be my strength. Be my joy. Be my wisdom. Be my all. Be enough. And Jesus said, "If if you do that, he will be your help. Jesus is what we need and he's what you need to continue in fulfilling this commission. In John chapter 15, verse Jesus says, "I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever abides in Jesus, bears much fruit. Good public speaker, bad public speaker. Doctorate, GED. Child or adult, rich or poor, whoever abides in Jesus bears much fruit. Let him determine the fruit that he wants to produce through you, and you just abide in him. Let him be your sufficiency, and you will bear much fruit to his glory. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, he says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers, of a new covenant. The Lord was with Paul, making Paul sufficient for the task. And he will also be with us and with you. Just abide in him. I love it in John chapter six. Jesus said, it said, He knew what he was going to do. He already knew what he was going to do, and Jesus already knows what he's going to do, and he's going to get it done. We don't have to try and figure out the particulars of every outcome or every situation. Follow his commands. Trust him. Let him be the source of your strength. Speak his words and watch him get it done. Because he knows what he's going to do. He's going to finish the task. He's got this all under control. Trust him. Lean on him. And know that he is powerful enough to provide for you and to get the task done. That's called point number three. Jesus is powerful to provide. Verses 19 to 21. Matthew, We're back in Matthew chapter 14, verses 19 to 21. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. The crowds were standing Jesus, while Jesus was teaching, and now Jesus tells them to have a seat. They sat on the grass, and then, in typical Jewish fashion, Jesus uh, blesses God for the for the for the food, and then he breaks the loaves and passes it to the disciples, and the disciples passes it out to the crowds. And in other accounts, we see that he also does the same thing to the fish. He has the disciples distribute the fish and the loaves to the crowds. And they kept distributing them. And they kept passing them out. A miraculous thing was happening. Jesus was multiplying The fish and the loaves. To the point where they all ate and were satisfied. More bread and more fish was forming. Out of nothing, Jesus bypassed all the natural processes and instantaneously he created bread and fish with enough maturity to be eaten and to satisfy 5,000 plus people, this is a supernatural, divine miracle. This is the power of Jesus. This is the power of Jesus. And through the power of Jesus, the disciples were able to, to, di- to distribute the food to the crowds. And the crowds ate and they were Satisfied. And disciples had some left over. So we see that 12 baskets full of the broken pieces was left over and they gathered those pieces up. The Lord can and does provide for his people and he does provide for his servants. He tells us to pray for our daily bread because he loves to provide for our daily bread. And he plans to provide for our daily bread. The normal way he provides for individual households is by providing them jobs. The normal way that he provides for God's work in the local church is through the giving of local church members. The, way that the normal way he provides for other churches who may not have as big a budget as other churches is by those more Uh, prospering financially churches to help give to those churches who may be lacking in that area. The way he provides for missionaries is is through the giving of churches and giving of church members. That's the way Jesus, the Lord provides, and he does it generously. And so we should seek to as we abide in Jesus and as he, Jesus is with us, we should trust him and we should let him use us to provide for others. Now, sometimes that can be scary because some of us aren't out of college yet. And so we don't have that much money. Some of us have college debt and so we don't have a lot of money. Um, and so we're, we're sometimes reluctant to give. And we're scared that there may not be enough left over for us. And then even just as a church, corporately, sometimes there are things come up or we have there's something that we want to get done in the budget. But then we see this this thing over here where it seems like we should maybe apply the money to maybe help a cause for Christ. And so we're torn between the two trying to figure out what should we do? How should the money be allocated and we begin to be nervous and we begin to doubt. And will God provide for us as we try to provide for others? Well, just listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly nor or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then he says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He says, he who supplies to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in Every way to be generous in every way, which will produce thanksgiving to God. In other words, as you seek to provide for what little you have or, what, how, or for the, the big stuff that you have. As God provides through you for others, he will provide for you as well. Just like the disciples had bread left over, so will you. I praise the Lord for you all, your church. The Lord has used you all to bless us, to give to us financially, to give us your your, your time and your prayers and your service. And we are thankful for you. And please be assured that our church gives much thanks to God for you, for the way you sacrifice for the Lord's and serve and and use your resources to bless us. We're thankful for you. And when it gets in doubt, when you get in doubt about uh, will the Lord continue to provide for you, trust that as you seek to fulfill the, the commission and to give towards other, he will not leave you without enough to continue the work. The word says it, we believe it. But there will be times that life gets hard and where things get rocky when we do step out and try to give or when we do step out and try and fulfill this, this commission to go and make disciples. And, though, and so therefore, we need to remember that the Lord Jesus is also a, a merciful deliverer. So we'll see that in verses 22 to 32. Now, I'm going to walk through this. He says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. In John 6, we'll stop right there. In John 6, we're told that Jesus performed this miracle of feeding the 5,000, and the crowds tried to force him to be their king, but Jesus didn't allow it. So Jesus sent his disciples away and told them to go across to the other side of the sea. And then he went up to the mountain to pray. When Jesus finished praying, he saw that the boat carrying the disciples was a long way from the land and that they were in the middle of a storm in the fourth watch of the night, probably between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So Jesus decides to catch up to his disciples on the sea, and the way he does it again is in a miraculous, wonderful way. He, he decides to, to do it by walking on the water, just takes a stroll across the sea. Unlike anybody else in the history of the world, Jesus is walking on the water, unafraid of the waves, unfazed by the wind, just, just peacefully strolling breaking every law of nature because he's in control of nature. And he comes up near his disciples while they're in the boat and the disciples become more terrified that he's walking on the water than they are of the storm. And so they're terrified. They're scared out of their minds and and the text says that they think it's a ghost. Look at verse 27. How Jesus responds to their fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on the water. Verse 29, he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. When Jesus saw they were scared, he turns and comforts them. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. So Peter, big Peter, decides to take Jesus at his word. And he says, since it's you, or he says, if it is you, command me to come. Peter is exhibiting a lot of faith and confidence in Jesus at the moment. I don't think Peter is testing the reality of a potential ghost because that would be a silly test because the outcome is you drown. I think Peter, I don't think Peter is still trying to figure out if it's a ghost or not. I think Peter is, has trust that it's Jesus. And so he says, if it is you, tell me to Come so, Jesus says, come. And in that one command of Peter to come, the Lord made sure the wind did not blow him off course, that the water did not give way, and that Peter's body did not sink. And now, Peter stepped out of the boat in faith, and by the power of Jesus, He is walking on the water, coming to Jesus. This is the power of Jesus. It wasn't the power of Peter's faith that gave him the ability to walk on water. Faith was just the instrument. Faith was the means. Faith was the tool. The power was in Jesus and his word to come. And we know that because right when Peter began to take his confidence off of Jesus, something disastrous happened. Look at verse 30. But when he saw the wind, that's Peter, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Took his eyes off Jesus, began to sink. And that's very typical of us. We start off with zeal. We start off with confidence to do missions or to do a certain thing. And, but things get scary. Unknowns begin to happen. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we become afraid and then we begin to doubt. We forget about the one who called us out of the boat in the first place. So we become afraid and we forget about the one who controls the winds and the waves and who can walk on the water. And we begin to fear, and our faith becomes polluted with fear. It happens all the time. And it will happen when we venture out as disciples to make disciples. Now, notice what Jesus does. Now, notice what Jesus does. Now, notice what Jesus does in order to refocus Peter's gaze and to refine his faith. Jesus allows Peter to sink. The text said that Peter, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Boats begin to sink people sink. So in Peter beginning to sink, this tells us that Jesus was providentially and carefully ordering the water to allow him to sink slowly, giving him enough time to cry out, Lord, save me. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord refines our faith. The Lord is jealous for our gaze. He wants our gaze to be on him. And so there will be times when we become afraid that things may get rough and he may direct it to be that way so that he can redirect your gaze upon him. The Lord is in control when we're walking on water, prosperous, strong, and the Lord is in control when we find ourselves sinking in despair. He's always in control. And he does that. He wants us to fix our eyes on him the whole way through. And he wants us to continue to remember where our strength is and to cry out, Lord, save me. And when we do that, he, he does, because he's a merciful deliverer. Look at verse 31. Jesus immediately, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Jesus immediately saves Peter. He doesn't tell tell Peter, all right, kick a little harder. Make your way back to the boat, we'll figure, we'll talk about this later. (laughs) He doesn't let Peter sink and say, okay, that's a weak one, bring out the next one. (laughs) He immediately, with an extra measure of gentleness, doesn't say Peter rise, but he reaches out his hand. takes hold of him and pulls him back up. And when they get into the boat, the boats, the winds cease. The storm was over. Jesus is a mighty deliverer. In the midst of the deliverance, he gives a slight rebuke. He says, "Oh you of little faith, why did you doubt?" When Jesus speaks of little faith, he isn't talking about the quantity of his faith, but about the quality of his faith. Peter had mixed faith with doubt and corrupted his faith. And so Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you replace faith with fear? Why did you look at the waves instead of keeping your eyes and your heart the eyes of your heart fixed on me? Why did you forget that it is I who called you out here? Why did you forget it is, it is I who is with you? Now, if, if Jesus gave Peter a slight rebuke for being afraid while walking on water in the middle of a storm, who wouldn't be afraid about that? I wonder how he feels about us at times when we, we shudder at walking in the grocery store and telling somebody about Jesus or when we are afraid to walk up to our family members and tell them that the Lord has called us to missions. How much more can, can we hear Jesus saying, um, why do you doubt? It is I. Take heart. A lot of times we should, we should repent of our doubts. There's a difference between longing for answers and and, and searching for truth. There's a difference between doing that and, and doubting the truth that you know. In those times of doubt and fear, that is when we are doubting what Jesus has told us about himself, not holding him to his word, almost treating him as if he's unwise or a liar or something to that effect. When we doubt what we know, that needs to be repented of. And we need to call out to him. Sometimes when we do doubt, we can begin to question if we're the right person for the task of going out to do missions or when we begin to doubt we can think that the Lord would just push us aside our doubts remind us of how weak we are and so we begin to look inward and we could begin to mope and say oh I shouldn't have did this in the first place let's not let doubt do that to us the Lord Jesus knows our frame he knows that we are but dust he knows that there will be seasons of doubt and he's ready to deliver you from that. He's ready to lift you back up and set you back on, on course to continue the work that he called you to do. So call out to him. Remember that it is I who called you out there in the first place. It is Jesus that called you out there and and called out to him and he will st- strengthen you reinvigorate you, hold you fast, and keep you going. He is, a ready, he is ready to be your joy, ready to be your hope, ready to be your refuge and your rock. Call out to him and watch how he cares for you. Watch how he will deliver you. And when he does that, it will be all to the glory of his great name. And that is leads us to the last point. Jesus is the one who is with us, is worthy to be worshipped. So verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. One of the main points of the book of Matthew and the main point of these miracles is that Jesus is truly the Son of God. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets and said that that one day an everlasting, incorruptible, unshakable, perfectly peaceful, and sinless kingdom would be established forever. They prophesied that this amazing, wonderful kingdom will be established on the earth and that all other kingdoms would be crushed by this one kingdom and will be subdued by this kingdom. This will be the kingdom of God. And the king of this kingdom will be someone who was the son of David and also the son of God. The point of the book of Matthew, the point of these miracles, is to show that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. That he is the son of God. And that he deserves to be worshipped. That he is worthy to be worshipped. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he accepts worship because worship belongs to him. And so when we are out and we are out. Fulfilling God's call to make disciples and to be compassionate, when all other motivations might fail, remember the worthiness of Jesus. There's no one like Him. There's no one that walks on water like Him. There's no one that breaks bread and feeds five thousand. And there's no one who would, who's able, who was, who is willing. To endure the wrath of God for a sinful man. And there's no one who could have come up from that type of death. Jesus is the one that is worthy to be worshipped. And that is the supreme reason for us going out and making disciples. Pray for me on this. When You all remember to pray for mercy of Christ. Remember, pray for Jeremy. Pray for me on this because my temptation, having so much brokenness around, is for the priority to be for people to be saved so that their brokenness can be healed. And I do want their brokenness to be healed. And I know that salvation in Christ can do that because he makes people new new creatures. But primarily people need to be saved because they need to worship Jesus. Who is God and Lord overall? Pray that the Lord will help me fight that temptation. That I remember that the aim is to exalt Christ. I want Tommy off drugs. I want Pam to stop prostituting. I want two parent households. I want racial reconciliation. I want business owners to be ethical. I want, but most importantly, I want, we should want every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. So we share the gospel, we make sacrifices, we, we demonstrate compassion. Because he deserves to be worshipped and we do it all with the strength of Jesus knowing that he is with us at all times. I pray that we all can remember how great Jesus is. And how much he is with us and ready for us to lean on him as we go and do missions. And I pray that you all will be encouraged to that end. Let me pray for us. Dear <coughs> me, Father, we thank you for Jesus. He is the solid rock on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We ask that you would place our feet firmly on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would work in our hearts to make us go and make disciples of all nations. And we ask that you would give us the compassion, the strength, the power to do so to the glory of Jesus Christ is in his name. We pray. Amen.